Well, I hate to use my family and my kids for illustrations all the time, but I can't help it. I'm a desperate man. Um, I'm going to start offering to pay my kids every time I mention them in a sermon. <laughs> I was, uh, it was late. It was late one evening, and one of my children cried out, Daddy! Daddy! And uh, this child said his sibling's name. And he said, so-and-so said they don't want you to be their boss. And uh, they don't want God to be their boss. And then I heard the other child say, no. And so I went in and I sat down on the edge of their bed and I put my little daddy counselor hat on, you know. Um, and I said, hey, hey, listen, I, I, I understand, you know. I understand you're not wanting me to be your boss. You know, I'm a, I'm a sinful man. Uh, I'm redeemed. I'm a child of the king, but I still sin. And I'm flawed and, and I make mistakes and I get angry. And I get it. I get it. Um, but you also said that you didn't want God to be your boss. You don't want God to be your king. And I just want to know, why not? You know, I want to... <laughs> and it was a lighthearted moment, but it was one of those moments where you can really shepherd your kid. And I said, let's, let's talk about this. You know, so I sat down with that little rebel. <laughs> and we had a little chat. And I said, what kind of king do you think you need? And what kind of king do you want? And so often, those two things don't meet, do they? We want this kind of king. But we really need this kind of king. And listen, let's be honest. We're, we're not so very much unlike that unnamed child of mine, are we? We're not keen on the idea of having a king. We're not. It's okay to be real. We don't want a king. It's like the parable that Jesus told where the people said, we will not have this man to reign over us. We don't want him. A king means power, control, authority, rules, you have a king, you serve. You're a subject to the king. Kings can tax you, right? Kings can send your sons and daughters to war. Kings can arrest you, whether you're guilty or not. Kings can execute you. Kings can wreck your life. And a lot of kings and rulers and presidents and leaders do and have and will continue to. Even those in Israel, even the best of the best, a man after God's own heart committed murder and adultery and idolatry, Solomon, the wisest king that ever lived, he had his own harem full of concubines and wives and wrote the book of Ecclesiastes to tell you how empty it left him and unfulfilled. We don't like the idea of a king. We don't want one. And God understands that. So let me give you a preliminary point here. Jesus is a king. He's not just a king. And we've talked about this before. He's the king, right? Not Elvis. Jesus. Jesus is the true king. And, and listen, at, that, at this point in Mark's gospel, we're in chapter 11, that's, that's really undisputed. It's undisputed. His claim to the throne of Israel is legit. His credentials check out. His bloodline and genealogy can be traced all the way back. Both Joseph and Mary had ties to David and to Abraham. And not only that, not only the genealogies say he's a true returning king, Right? But, but the qualifications for being the Messiah and the King of Israel, he's met all of them. I mean, the Messiah would come and he would raise the dead, heal the sick, the, the, the deaf speak, and the deaf hear. Oh, wait a minute, I'll say that right. You get it. The lame walk, the blind see, all that stuff. He's done all of that. He controls the weather. He controls demons. He controls nature. He controls everything. Jesus is the King by right. And listen, we need a King. God designed us to flourish and thrive under a king, a ruler. We need a king. 
That's why all these stories that we hear, they resonate with us. They really do. Like Lord of the Rings, huge fan. I know I try to weave an illustration in every sermon. I'm sorry if you're not a J.R. Tolkien fan. I was going to call this sermon The Return of the King, and I thought, nah, it's too much. But one of those stories, you know why that's the number one best-selling book and one of the best trilogy movies? Because we get it. There's this king in obscurity up in the north, and he's the king with healing hands. He's the true king. And the throne is disputed, and he's making his way back to the city of Gondor where he's going to be crowned, right? Why do all those, the sword and the stone, there's one legitimate king, and he'll surprise you who he is. He's this little kid that has true virtue. He's the only one that can pull this sword out of the stone. Why do those stories resonate with us? Because they're shadows of a greater story, right? I could go on and on about the stories. Like, we all laugh. Peter Pan, this kid that's living forever in his youth. Well, that's me. Why do I want that? I want eternal life, don't you? Those stories matter to us. Those little echoes that C.S. Lewis said of the real truth. So we were made for a king. We were designed for a king. So it's good news that Jesus is the king. And listen, life works best when this true king is where he's supposed to be, right at the center of your life. That's where he belongs. That's where the true king deserves to be. Not on the outskirts of your life, not on the edges, not in the neighboring town, right in the center. And when he's there, all these other planets are in their proper orbit, right? Rest, career, relationships, and your true identity, your purpose. Those are where they're supposed to be. When those move into the middle, oh man, it's, it wreaks havoc on your life. I learned last week that 20% of people learn by visuals, uh, not just visually like a PowerPoint, but by graphs and charts. So I'm trying to hit everybody here, okay? If your career is in the middle of your life, you will sacrifice to it. You will. If it's where it's not supposed to be. Careers are wonderful. You know, work came before the fall of man, not after. Work just got really hard and, and toiling and sweating and conflicting after the fall, right? But if you, if you replace the true king with your career then you're going to sacrifice and serve that career. And listen, you're going to love it a lot more than it loves you. Your career is not going to die for you, but it'll kill you <laughs> if you let it. And you know what? Your relationships will suffer if your career is in the... I'm just, just one hypothetical of many that I can put there. Your rest will suffer. Your relationships will suffer. Your purpose, you'll be confused. Who am I? Am I an employee or am I a child of the king? Who am I really? Your health will suffer. And that king will gladly take all those sacrifices. It reminds me of Jeremiah 2 in the Old Testament where, where God, he's seeing all the idolatry of the people of Israel. He says, look, you've, you've made for yourselves wells. Cisterns is the word in, in the Old Testament. Wells. He said, but they're, they're broken. Your wells, your wells that you dug up, they're broken. They can't hold water. So you keep pouring water in and pouring water in and pouring water in and you never pull any out. It's like all these gods you've made. They take and they take and they take and they never give. You're sacrificing everything and you're not getting anything in return. They're sucking life out of you. Life doesn't work the right way because the true king's not where he's supposed to be. Now, I could take career and move that and I could put health or sports or hobbies or whatever. We need... <laughs> We need a king that, that, you know, whenever the presidential election was going on, there were all these parodies going on that all, all these candidates were making promises. And it, and it put everybody in, in, in mind of, of this guy. We want a king who will never give you up, right? No, other kings can't do that. Seriously. 
Everybody wants a king like that, but it doesn't work that way. There's only one king that can make good on all his promises, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. We've been waiting for a king like Rick Astley. But listen, what I was trying to tell my rebel of a kid that night in bed was like, look, son, um, Jesus is a king, but you don't have to be afraid. He's not a king like other kings. He's different. So on the edge of that bed, what I did was like try and walk one of my children through kind of this passage here, this outline. It's like, Jesus is king, but that's okay. It's good news. Don't be afraid because he's a radically different king than any other king you've ever seen. See, he knows just not what you want, that if he gives it to you, it may wreck your life. He knows what you need, and he's able to meet you there. That's what this passage is really about, and that's why our points are going to be a, a different kind of king, a different kind of king. And we'll try to keep this short. Um, one, the king, this king controls the details in this passage, Mark 11, 1 through 11. This king controls the details. Secondly, this king came in humility. And thirdly, this king conquered by dying. So look at the passage here. They're drawing near Jerusalem. Jesus has been telling his disciples and the crowds he's going to Jerusalem to die. That's his purpose. This king is going to Jerusalem and he's going to die. He's going to make atonement. He's going to offer a sacrifice and he's going to redeem the world. That's what his purpose is. He set his face like a flint. And he's in control. Not, not only does he care about the details, but, but this king, Jesus, controls the details. If I could really geek out here, uh, be a Bible nerd, and, and take you through all the prophecies, all the um, circumstances and contingencies and decisions, and it, it will blow your mind. All the things that had to happen for Jesus Christ to walk through the city gates of Jerusalem on this particular day, on a Sunday, the month of Nisan, on the 10th, in the year A.D. 30. This is a fulfillment of tons of prophecies. This king was absolutely in control of all those details. All of his life has been aimed at this particular juncture where he is walking into the city that belongs to him. Jerusalem's the city of God. And God's about to ride through the city gates on a donkey according to plan. According to plan. And he's going to set in motion a chain of events that's going to take him out the other side of the city to a hill called Calvary. And he's going to be wearing a cross. And he's going to do what he was born to do. That's what this king came to do. He's in control of all these details. His arrival was one of the greatest moments that the world has ever seen. And it's interesting because he came uh, exactly the way he was supposed to. 1,500 years before this, did you know Moses was writing the law of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? And he was telling all the families of Israel, now listen, in the month of Nisan, on the 10th day, let every family choose for themselves a lamb. And the lamb has to be flawless, spotless, clean, without blemish, no imperfections, no flaws. It's got to be a perfect lamb, right? So the family chooses this lamb on the 10th of Nisan. And then three days later, they slaughter this lamb. And it's, you know, a picture of atonement. Jesus, the lamb of God, is walking into the city of Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan. God has chosen his lamb. And it's perfect, and it's spotless, and it's flawless. And that's going to be the one sacrifice that's going to end all sacrifices forever. That will be the final one that will render the temple unnecessary and the entire Levitical sacrificial system unnecessary any longer. This is radical. That's why a lot of the priests had a hard time with this. And a lot of people have a hard time with this too. 
Jesus is controlling the details of this precisely. He will enter Jerusalem as scheduled. He's following Scripture also. You know, Mark doesn't tell us. Um, it's interesting. Jesus says, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. This is, this is pretty funny if you think about it. Can you imagine being one of the disciples? There's millions of people, at least one million people in the city of Jerusalem. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people on the road. Donkeys everywhere, okay? Lambs everywhere. And Jesus says, hey, go into the next town, and you're going to find a donkey tied up with thousands of other donkeys tied up probably, right? And he says, untie it and bring it to me. <laughs> I mean, that would be like saying, hey, listen, go to Best Buy, find one of the laptops on display, bring it to me. If they ask you anything, say, Pastor Tommy needs it. I'll bring it back. See what happens. See what happens when the security system goes off, right? But listen, what I'm trying to tell you is this King Jesus is in control of all the details. And this, is, this will encourage you if you hear me here. All the things that had to happen for that donkey to be tied right there next to its new colt to be tied up, for the people to be willing for the Lord to take that donkey and to use it, that's just astonishing to me. And that's just one little bitty teeny weeny example in Scripture of how Jesus meticulously controls details. All the, There's no happenstance. There's no serendipity. There's no accidents. There's no fate. Okay, this is providence. And I'm not talking about the capital of Rhode Island. That's a theological term that means God controlling all circumstances, all decisions, all things visible and invisible, all creatures, all animals, all people. He controls all of it. All of it. He's not exhausted or weary or tired. He doesn't get confused. Man, this is a truth that the Bible reveals to us over and over. The numbers are, people think this is a joke for bald people, but he counts the hairs on your head. I read somewhere how many hundreds of thousands of hairs were on your head, and Jesus knows every single one of them. You know, it also says, not a sparrow falls to the ground without his permission and his say-so. You know how many sparrows die every day? And the Bible says, are you of not, <clears throat> get this right, have you, <clears throat> are you not much more important than many sparrows? Man, you know how much trouble you would get in today to kill a sparrow? That's a whole other sermon, right? Jesus says, you're much more valuable than a sparrow. Not a sparrow drops to the ground without my divine control and my sovereign oversight of that. There is a passage that Sarah and I were talking about this the other day. You remember whenever Peter, the officials were like, hey, Peter, are you going to pay the temple tax? Or are you exempt because you're a follower of Jesus? And Peter was thinking about it. It bothered him. They put a rock in his shoe. It bothered him. Jesus came through the door and he said, Peter, I got a question for you. Who do you think should pay the taxes? The people in the kingdom or the sons? Something I'm paraphrasing. And number one, he knew what Peter was thinking. And Peter answered him and he said, you're right. We really are exempt. You're children of the king. But so that we don't offend, and he says this. It's easy to miss stuff like this in the Bible. He says, so that we don't offend, go cast your hook in the sea. And the first fish you take out, there will be a coin in its mouth, and then go pay the temple tax for me and for you. That's a shekel. You know how much a shekel was worth then? About 600 bucks. You're like, Pastor, you're, you're crazy today. What are you talking about? Well, listen, <laughs> he controls all the details. Can you imagine going and throwing your hook in the water and pulling out a fish and $600 and 20s being rolled up and stuck in its mouth? And that's just what you needed to pay rent. 
That's the kind of king that we serve. It is. And those are just two little bitty examples. This donkey tied up. Jesus had all these details worked up. I read one guy, and he said Jesus the night before had ran into the city and, and ran around and talked to people and found a donkey. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not what this is about. Jesus sovereignly, he's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He knows everything. And look, he knows the issues that are going on in your life right now. And I'm pointing it all at you, okay? And me too. He knows the money problems. This king controls the details. And you say, well, how's that encouraged me? Well, do you know any other king that's involved in the details? You know, you know what we hear about details all the time. What's the saying? The devil's in the details. I, got so, I get so sick of hearing that. Okay, the devil's in the Can God be in the details too, maybe? <laughs> that's more encouraging to me than the devil being in them. Satan's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time. But God controls the details. He knows your money problems and your marriage problems and your sin problem and your relationship problem and your health problem. None of those things escapes his notice. He knows you don't know if you're going to have enough groceries, money to buy groceries. He knows that relationship with your child that's fragile and, and cracked. He knows all of that. He understands he knows the hardships you have with parenting. None of those things escape his notice. This king knows about those details. He cares about them, and he controls them. And that encourages me. That encourages me. Most kings, they have to delegate that stuff. They can't, they can't keep track of it. Rightly so. You wouldn't want a king, humanly speaking, that was in all the details. He wouldn't be a good ruler. He wouldn't be a good leader, but not this king. No, this king, everything, nothing escapes his divine notice. And that is meant to encourage us. Mark doesn't tell us why Jesus wanted to ride a donkey. Isn't that strange? It's okay to look at the Bible and be like, what the heck? What's this here for? But Matthew does tell us, and this is what Matthew says. Matthew 21, after he said, go find a donkey for me to ride. It wasn't because Jesus was tired and wanted a break, right? This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, this is a quote from a passage I'll show you next. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus is so much in control of the details, he's fulfilling scripture here. He is fulfilling and making good on all the prophecies. He's not rushing things. He's not scrambling around. Some people have a view of Jesus fulfilling Scripture. He's reading the Old Testament. And, oh, man, what do I do next? I got to, let's see, uh, I got to be forsaken. I got to be uh, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Get the silver. No, this is all according to plan. He's not rushed. He's not panicking. This is the plan. Jesus is the king. He's coming into a city, and everything is worked out, and it's on according to his timetable. Nobody else's. This is the passage that was, was quoted. And this is kind of what I told my, my kid that night. Listen, Jesus is our king, and that's good news. The Bible says that. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, look, your king's coming. And you say, okay, time out. Rejoice, sing, because the king's coming. Yeah, I know what kings do when they come, but no, listen, look. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. It's the only king that was ever righteous. Righteous and having salvation is he. And then this really blows our mind. This is the next point here. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I grew up on a farm, had 13 registered quarter horses. 
I rode horses every day of my life, and we had some donkeys and mules. This may escape many of your notices, okay? Um, donkeys are very stubborn animals. Unridden donkeys that are little, <laughs> it's, it's not a fun exercise to get on one of those, okay? It's not at all. You're going to hit the dirt. But Jesus is the king, and he's in control of all the details, and they bring this coat, probably, and they didn't have to drag it probably. It went right along because God's sovereign over all that. They brought this, brought this donkey to Jesus. They spread their cloaks over it. They rolled out the red carpet, and Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the 10th day of the month of Nisan in the year A.D. 30 of our Lord, exactly like the Scripture said 500 years before he did it in Zechariah chapter 9. That's amazing to me. Doesn't that blow your mind? Everything's according to plan. Jesus is not rushed. He's not panicking. He's the king. He's the master of the moment. All of this has been laid out centuries before the foundation of the world. The Bible says the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. And that's where he's going. That's what he's doing. This king is in control of the details. This king is humble. And that's the gospel, right? This king's different. He's not coming to take power. He's coming to relinquish power. He's not coming like one of the Roman generals would come. He's coming in weakness to die for our sins. It's interesting. You know, Luke's version of this says that when he got on the donkey and he was riding down the Mount of Olives into the city, it says that he stopped and he looked at the city and he began to weep. Man, I want a king that cries. <laughs> I just say that. Don't you, don't you want somebody ruling over you? That they're in, they're in charge of their emotions, but Jesus is genuinely weeping. Why? Because he cares about this city. He cares about these people, and they are his enemies. And he knows. He's in control of the details. You know, Jesus knows this is not a true coronation here. This is false. They're putting a crown on him. They don't mean it. They don't mean it. He knows that in just a few days, now they're saying, crown him, Hosanna God, save us. In a few days, you know what they're going to be saying? Curse him. Kill him. Crucify him. He knows that. And he's weeping over the city. He's weeping. Because he knows, if you would have only known the things that would make for your peace, but you have missed the time of your visitation. This king weeps over the city. What a different kind of king. That's amazing. This king is a different kind of king. And here's the other control of details. Have you noticed in Mark's gospel that Jesus is always doing things, miraculous things, and he's telling people, shh, don't tell anybody. That's what scholars call the messianic secret in Mark's gospel. Jesus healed a leper, and he said, don't tell anybody. Go offer your sacrifice to the priest, don't talk about it. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, and he said, it says he strictly charged them to tell no one. He was transfigured on the mountain just a few chapters earlier. And when he came down the mountain with his disciples, he said, don't tell anybody until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. But now, now, secret's out. Secret's out. Do you remember the passage before this? Jesus healed a man named Bartimaeus. He healed him. The man was crying out, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus didn't say, shh, keep it down. No, no, the die is cast. The king is coming back to his city, and the secret is out. You know what they're saying now? They're saying, Hosanna God. They're saying, King of Israel, Messiah. Secret's out. Jesus is ready for people to know he is the king. He gets on the donkey. This would have put people in remembrance of Zechariah 9. Or Jehu, one of the kings of the Old Testament, did the same thing. 
they would have known he's the king. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He's not just this crazy sage that's doing miracles. He's not just an exorcist casting out demons. This is the king. So he's like, rip <laughs> Clark Kent, the disguise is off. This is Jesus coming to his city. And he's in control because, listen, him revealing, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the king. It's going to precipitate his death. And he knows that, and that's all according to plan. This king is in charge of all the details. The messianic secret is out. And he's about to come to the temple. That's the, we'll be there in a couple of weeks. He's going to come to the temple and rearrange the furniture because it's his, right? You don't go to a place that doesn't belong to you and start rearranging furniture. That's wrong. That's weird. That's awkward. That's rude. Now, Jesus, he wants everybody to know, I am who I said I am. He's dropped little hints along the way. He said things like, before Abraham was, I am. He said things like, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning because I was there. <laughs> he says things like, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Me and my Father are one. So all this is culminating. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am God in human flesh. He's ready. And listen, guys, one of the details is this. And this is where I get in your kitchen a little bit, okay? I told you this king is a good king and that you were made for a king, but I want to ask you a question. Is Jesus your king? Is he in the center of your life where he's supposed to be? Because listen, Jesus is pushing the envelope here with everybody and with us. And he's saying, look, um, I'm not just a savior. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a teacher. I'm not here to give advice. I'm the king. I'm here to rule. This king will serve you. We'll talk about that in a minute, but he is king. He is king. Some people say, well, you know, it's, I, I accept that Jesus is my savior and maybe one day I'll make him Lord. No, 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 no. No, you don't, you don't divide Jesus in two. That's like saying, I love Tommy, but I hate Clayton. <laughs> it's the same person. You don't say, you know, savior come in, king stay out. No, it's, it's, it's all or nothing, right? That's what we call the lordship of Christ. And that shouldn't be a threat to you. That's a good thing. You want this king on his throne. You want to be serving him because this king serves you. Jesus is pushing the envelope here. He refuses for you to just like him. Let me say it that way. And we live in America in 2019, and I've been a pastor for almost two decades now, and I've met a lot of people that just like Jesus. They think they do. <laughs> they think they like him until he really reveals who he is, and he aims to separate them from their sin because he loves them. Now, Jesus refuses to just be liked. He's the king with all the rights and privileges and authority pertaining thereunto, right? But he is a different kind of king, and that's the next point. Man, did I miss point two in there somewhere? No, I just misnumbered. Point number two, different kind of king. Okay, this king controls all the details, point one. Point two, this king came in humility. This king came in humility. And we saw that riding a donkey, that was a tremendous sign of humility and meekness. And that's just different for us. We don't, we don't know that. We, we think king and we don't think meek and humble. That's one of the only adjectives, by the way, that Jesus ever used to describe himself. Come unto me, all you who are heavy burdened and labored, and I will give you rest, for I am humble and meek and lowly in heart. He used humility to describe himself. That just that doesn't compute with us. It's like majesty and meekness, lion and lamb. That's like jumbo shrimp or Microsoft works. 
We don't really have a comp- compartment for that. That's, that's a contradiction to us. Or boneless ribs, you know. doesn't make any sense. He's the lion who's also the lamb. He's the king who's also the servant. This ruler comes to serve. But that was his go, remember? Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man has come not to be served like every other king and demands worship and service and service. No, this king came to serve. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And he came in the city riding on a donkey like a hobbit, you know? This is just different. You've never seen a king like this king. And that's just a demonstration of how different he is. And listen, the gospel of Mark was written to Gentiles who lived in Rome. Who lived in Rome. Let that settle in for a minute. Do you know how encouraging this would have been for them to read that? Here comes the true king of the world who has the right to take whatever he wants. Listen, if he's the true king, he can take whatever he wants. He doesn't even have to ask permission for the donkey. It's his, right? Our lives are his, our cars, our money, our houses, everything. But this king is so meek and he's so humble. You know what people in Rome would have remembered? All the other people that came into the city like this. That's Louis Twelfth of France entering Genoa. I know that's not Israel, but same thing applies there. Look at him. He's mounted on a war horse. He's got armor on. He's got four women there bowing down, worshiping him. He's got footmen all around him. This is Henry II entering Lyon. He's on the ocean there in his castle boat. <laughs> He's just floating down, man, about to go into the city that's his on a boat. And he, when he hit the land, that's, <laughs> he transferred to that when he hit the land. It reminds me of the Oscars or the Grammys or something like that. Who's got the biggest limo? Who's got the most pomp and, and uh, clout, you know? It's just a contest for popularity and power. Throughout history, Charles V of France entering Paris. Look at him. Here's King John II of France. Henry IV coming into Paris. He's up in a golden chariot with armor, swinging a sword. That's every other king who ever came into their city, but not this king. This king, he's just got a few disciples around him, some misinformed worshipers that don't have a clue what they're saying. No sword. He didn't come in violence. He didn't come with force. He didn't come to take power. Man, that's, do you understand that? That's a different kind of king. This king came in humility. This king came in humility, and they've never seen anything like that before. It blew him away. If you were a conquering Roman emperor or general, first your armies would come in, then the generals, then the conquering hero, and then you would have chained to your chariot all your, either your captives or the soldiers that you killed. And then you would go to the temple and you would make a sacrifice. And that would show you're the legitimate ruler. Man, Jesus did this totally different. Look what Sinclair Ferguson said here. He said, how stark the contrast between Roman glory and Jesus' humility must have seemed. How mighty and powerful the sword and political power by contrast with King Jesus. Yet we know that his kingdom was established while the glory that was Rome disappeared into oblivion. We know that what Jesus did in Jerusalem established a kingdom which would outlast all the kingdoms of this world and break in pieces every man-centered kingdom which sets itself against it. I mean, here we are talking about Jesus hundreds of thousands of years later and Rome's crumbled to the dust, right? His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. You know, there's a story, it's really interesting to me. I'm not making fun of any other religion, but when Muhammad came into Mecca, 
He rode into Mecca to conquer. He was on a fierce stallion, brandishing a sword. He was surrounded by 400 um, of his footmen and 10,000 uh, cavalry were riding alongside him. Any enemy that he encountered on the way, he slaughtered them and imprisoned them. Either slaughtered them if they were unwilling to yield, uh, or he imprisoned them if they were. And it's said that in Istanbul, Turkey, the sword that Muhammad used is on display in the palace there. Now contrast that with Jesus, who came into the city of Jerusalem. He didn't have a sword. He was on a donkey, not a stallion, not a war horse. He didn't have footmen. He had 12 fishermen and zealots and tax collectors that had been converted. Just, just think of the contrast in your mind. How different this king was than the king's people were used to. He was a righteous king. He was a humble king. He was in control of all the details. It's just amazing to me. And he came in peace, not in violence. So here's the third point. And we'll finish rapidly here. This king conquered by dying. This king conquered by dying. You know what's interesting? Whenever John's gospel quotes, uh, whenever John's gospel quotes the verse from Zechariah, it has a different translation. It says, "Behold, your king," and it also it also says there, "Behold, don't be afraid, for your king comes, righteous and humble, riding on a donkey." That's interesting to me. Don't be afraid. See, we, get, we are afraid. Hey, the king's coming. The king's coming into your life. And we're afraid because what do we think? We think he's going to wreck our life. This king's going to ruin me. He's going to wreck me. It's what people think. Or on the other side of that, look at what these people were shouting. They were saving. Look at verse, look at verse 9. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You know what Hosanna means? It means, please save me. Please save me. King, please rescue us. Now listen, this is where this king is so different than any other king that ever went before us. Because Jesus is coming into this city. And he is the king, the rightful king, the legitimate king. And he's coming to conquer. Right? But he's not coming to conquer who they think he's coming to conquer. And listen, guys, I really want you, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see that this morning, in our own lives. I don't want you to think of anybody else, think of yourself this morning, because there's things going on in all of our lives, and we think this, we think, God, if you would just take this away, this is wrecking my life, and this is ruining me, and we think, just, just, Hosanna, just please, please, God, save me from this, save me from that, deliver me, and we're no different than the misguided, overzealous, misinformed disciples and the people on that road that were shouting that day, because you know what? Do you know what they thought, who they thought was ruining their life? Rome. That's what they thought. They thought that this was their political savior. Jesus came to conquer and get the Romans out of their way. I want to tell you, when you really know that the, that the gospel has dropped in your heart, it's when you are willing to face yourself for the first time. There's a lot of people they never have. I do counseling a lot. I do a lot of counseling, and there's a lot of complexities, especially in marital counseling, but a lot of time, and Melissa can vouch for this sometimes, sometimes it happens. The couple will be sitting across from us, and they may not say it, but you can tell it. We're like, so what's the problem in your marriage? And you know what they do? They point to their spouse, <laughs> right? It's a rare thing, but it's a glorious thing when somebody says, you know what? I'm the problem. 
I'm the problem in my marriage. I'm the problem in my parenting. I'm the problem in my house. I'm the parenting. I'm the problem at work. I'm, I'm the problem. Me. See, when you, when you can say that, when you can say that, you're not far from the kingdom. Because <laughs> listen, Jesus didn't come to take the Romans. That's why I was weeping. These people didn't get it. They didn't see it. Jesus came to conquer. He didn't come to conquer Rome. If he would have conquered Rome, we'd all be in trouble today. They may have been happy for a few decades. We'd be in big trouble. Because our greatest problem would have still been alive and well and active. Jesus didn't come to remove Rome. Rome wasn't running their life. They were running their life. Jesus came to dethrone sin and dethrone Satan. And you know what that required? That required for him to ride into that city, humble and lowly, and serve those people. If you think the entrance to the city was weird, riding on a donkey, you should see the way he left the city. He left the city under a wooden cross, walking out the gates, and he died between two thieves, exactly fulfilling the details of prophecy, right? That's what Jesus did. This king conquered by dying. And it's the ultimate paradox. It's the ultimate paradox. Every other king came conquering by taking life. This king conquered by giving his life. The thing that's running us is sin in our heart. That's what the true enemy is. They didn't get it. Even the disciples didn't. In John 12, it says this. His disciples did not understand these things at first him riding on the donkey. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Sometimes that's what we do to God. We go to God and we're like, I need you to do for me exactly what I, give me exactly what I think I need. Fix this, change this, make this better. And if Jesus did all those things, the the true problem would still be enthroned. Because it's we're not relating the right way to God. That's the problem. And that's what Jesus came to fix. Behold, your king is coming to you. Don't you love that? Our king came to us. We couldn't go to him. We tried, we tried to make our way to God. Epic fail, right? No, this king came to us. He knew we were too weak. The Bible says when you were weak, God died for you. When you were his enemies, he died for you. This king made his way to us. And I I love the Old Testament prophecies that say, look, don't be afraid. Behold, your king is coming. I was talking to somebody in my office. I don't remember. Maybe been John um, just last week. And we were talking about the difference. And I'm closing with this. The difference between good news and good advice. Have you guys ever heard this distinction? There's Christianity right here. Protestant evangelical Christianity. And then there's every other religion in the world. Okay? And here's the difference. Listen closely. Every other religion in the world has good advice for you. Something that you can do to help yourself. Something that you have to do that hasn't been done yet and the burden's on you. Something for you to do. Some action, some decision, some effort, some resolve. Good advice. Christianity has good news. Big difference. Nothing for you to do, but just a declaration, an announcement of something that's already been done for you by somebody else. Because you couldn't do it yourself. You weren't able And I love the picture that this shows of Jesus, the conquering king, coming into his city. Because listen, this good news, this is a picture in the Bible. The word word gospel is euanglion in Greek. And it, it literally is a word picture of a king who has fought a battle for the capital city. And he sends a dispatch, an envoy of messengers. 
And they run back, and they're going to make a declaration to the city who's trembling, trembling, afraid, waiting. Did we win? Was our king victorious? Or are we going to be enslaved and in prison for the rest of our life, held captive by a hostile foreign power? So they're cowering, waiting, and this messenger comes back, and he gospelizes them. That's what the word means. He gospelizes. He brings them good news of glad tidings for great joy. And he says, I've got good news. The battle has been fought and the king is victorious and there's nothing for you to do but celebrate. See, every other religion in the world says, I've got some advice for you. It didn't go so well, the battle. The king did everything he could, but the enemy was fierce and they were powerful and they overtook our army and they're on their, they're on their way here right now and you're about to have to fight for your life. That's every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world. Fight for your life. I don't know how this is going to go. Good luck. My advice is get some archers, get some cavalry, get some swords. Every fighting man and woman, get their armor on. That's every other religion. Not Christianity. Christianity has good news. The king is coming. Don't be afraid. Behold, he's a different kind of king. He's a humble king. He's in control of all the details. And he's going to conquer. He's going to conquer your greatest enemy. He'll do it single-handedly. You can't lift a finger to help him. He's that kind of a king. He'll give life, not take life. And yeah, they will cry out in three days' time. For this, this fickle crowd will cry out for this king to be cursed. And he will. He'll take a curse that you and I deserve. Because that's what the gospel says, right? Cursed is the man that hangs on a tree. We deserve to be cursed, but Jesus became a curse so that we could become the blessing of God. Man, what good news that is. And you know what? That's why we do this. Our hearts forget this, guys, so often. That's why we do this every first Sunday of every month. We do this in remembrance of Jesus. We remember the kind of king he is. Still, he's so radically different from every other king. He came and he gave his life and he said, it's finished. I paid it all. That's good news.